I've stayed in lots of different hotels uh, around the country, New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago and Dallas, Las Vegas, Orlando, Washington, D.C., Evansville, Indiana. That wasn't that impressive. But I've never been to another hotel like the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Miami, Florida. Uh, To give you some context, a base room there midweek, not holiday, a base room starts at $1,000 a night. I was only there because I got paid to work there in an event. (laughs) Uh, According to the staff that I talked to while I was there, when you walk into the lobby of a Mandarin Oriental Hotel anywhere in the world, uh, London, Beijing, all sorts of different places, any lobby of any Mandarin Oriental Hotel anywhere in the world, the temperature will be the exact same. The volume of music would be the exact same. Even the smell will be the same. actually comes from a specially curated incense stick that is made specifically for their hotel, hotel chain. Each of these things would be imperceptible to you. It would be entirely unnoticeable, but in your subconscious mind, you are being reminded of all the good experiences that you've had previously when you stayed there. So they can get more of your thousand dollars a night if you have have thousand dollars a night Uh, none of that is accidental right it is it is actually absolutely intentional because everything about your stay in a mandarin oriental hotel must live up to the standard of their brand they want everything about your stay the smallest detail that you don't even notice and the biggest detail it does that your attention is drawn to. They want everything to be worthy of their luxury brand. Every company has brand standards, right? For its, for its products or its employees. I mean, even when you buy a Little Caesars pizza, it may not taste that great, but it had better be two things, right? It better be hot and it had better be ready, right? That's it. I mean, it might be a low bar, but they had better reach it. And when you receive your food at Chick-fil-A, the workers aren't just going to serve you delicious chicken. They're going to enjoy serving you delicious chicken. They're going to enjoy refilling your sweet tea and, and cleaning up your kids' messes. And how do, I, how do I know that they enjoy it? Because when you thank them, every worker will tell you that it was their pleasure, pleasure brand standards. It's part of the standard of the Chick-fil-A brand each employee must live up to. Perhaps we could say that they must work worthy of their company for the sake of their customers. So as believers, is there a standard that we must live up to? Now, Christianity is not a company. Uh, It's not really a brand, but Paul uses this idea of worthiness to communicate something to the Colossians and to us about our lives as believers, and that's where Paul is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, our text for this morning, Uh, which is the Lord's will of decree, because we're here. That was two weeks ago, I guess. Colossians 1, I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. This is Paul's prayer continuing for the Colossians. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Walking worthy of the Lord. It's the subject of verses 10 through 12. But what, what does that mean? What does walk worthy of the Lord, what does that mean? Well, our, our walk, our walk is our lifestyle. It is how we live. As you read through the scriptures, you'll see this image come up very frequently. I mean, all the way back in, in Deuteronomy, uh, throughout Proverbs, other places as well. Uh, this, uh, this metaphor of, of our walk being how we live, the journey that our life takes, you could say. 
And this includes our motivations, it includes our choices, it includes our attitudes and our responses, it includes our words, it includes our actions, it includes what we do and it encompasses what we don't do as well. To walk worthy is to live up to a standard or according to a standard. So what is the standard that Paul is setting up? Or more accurately, who is the standard that Paul is referring to? What does it say? Walk worthy of the Lord. Who is the standard? The Lord is our standard. So who exactly is this referring to? It could be referring to God generally, but it is more likely that Paul is actually pointing specifically to Jesus Christ as our Lord. We are to walk worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this emphasis on Jesus specifically as our Lord fits very well within the context of this letter, this book, as we'll see for the coming weeks and months as we're able to look at other portions of this. So we are to walk worthy of Christ. So if this encompasses, if my walk encompasses my motivations, we we should then ask, what does Christ want my motivations to be? If it's our attitudes are part of our walk, what attitudes does Christ want me to have? How would Christ have me respond? What would Christ want me to say or not say, to do or not do? And there's obvious intentional overlap here with our text from last week. Paul is praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will of command, which is exactly throughout scripture saying, do and don't do, say and don't say, respond and don't respond, right? Act, don't act, be motivated by this, don't be motivated by this. Love these things, don't love these things. So, so God's will of command, it, we are to be filled by that. What God's word has revealed to us. So there's, a, there's walking worthy has this idea of, of according to a standard, the standard being Christ himself, but Paul thankfully gives us a, another phrase to help us define that. What else does walk worthy mean? It means, as the text says, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Fully pleasing to him, him being the Lord. A very quick and not very thorough search of the internet this week reveals that lots of different people agree that it is impossible to please everyone. Uh, Aesop even wrote a fable about a miller, his son, and their donkey. And in trying to please everyone with how they should get this donkey from their home into town, they ended up losing the donkey into a river. And the moral of the story was, if you try to please all, you please None. How true that is. So the internet's solution to this universal problem is very simple. Since you can't please everyone, only please yourself. Can't make everybody happy, so just make you happy. Well, Paul, shockingly, Paul disagrees with that conclusion. He agrees, though, that we must have a singular focus when it comes on pleasing, not everyone, on pleasing one. A singular focus. It just doesn't happen to be ourselves. He wrote about this to the Galatians as well, where he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or or of God? Two options. Am I trying to please Man, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So according to Paul, we can't please everyone and we shouldn't try, but we can please God. And this must be our goal. We can please God. A basic question then at every stage of life, as one author put it, should be, whom do I seek to please? Every stage of life. What stage of life are you at? Are you... uh, in middle school, where everything's, no offense, is this for all of us, everything's weird and nobody's happy, right? Are you in high school where everyone's cool but not really anyone is? Or everyone else is cool but you 
right? Are you, are you in college trying to escape who you were in high school, hoping that you don't meet anybody who knew you then? And then you move back and start pastoring in the area and everybody knew you. That's awkward. Are you entering into the workforce and wanting to establish yourself in a particular field? Are you, have, you, have you moved past that and you start to be maybe the opportunity to direct or mentor others who are coming beyond you? Have you retired from the workforce? And at any of those stages of life, who are you seeking to please? Yourself? Are you seeking to please your friends? Or are you seeking to please God? That's the question that each of us must be asking ourselves. Walking worthy of the Lord means living fully pleasing to him, which is just a staggering notion in my mind. Pleasing to him in everything, in every way. It's Paul's prayer for them. Question 16 of the New City Catechism asks, what is sin? And one line in the answer always sticks out to me each time we get around to that. It says this, sin is rebelling against God by, rebelling against God by living without reference to him. Rebelling against God by living without reference to him. Whatever behaviors may be involved in walking worthy of the Lord are not to be pursued on their own. Our focus must be on pleasing our Lord. Every part of our lives as Christians is meant to be lived in reference to Christ, pleasing to him, lived in reference to Christ as in living to please him, to bring him pleasure, to bring him delight. Brothers, sisters, your Lord Jesus Christ has searched you and known you. He knows when you sit down and when you rise up. He discerns your thoughts from afar. He searches out your path and your lying down. He's acquainted with all of your ways. Even before a word is on your tongue, your Lord knows it. Altogether, He hems you in behind and before and lays his hand upon you. He has searched you. He knows your heart. He has tried you and he knows your thoughts. He sees if there are any grievous ways in you and he will lead you in the way everlasting. As David penned those words as a prayer of praise to God. In Psalm 139, he recognized that his Lord was watching him and evaluating him. What were his thoughts? What were his words? What were his actions? What were his plans? So that is not just true of David, that's true of you. So is your walk, is my walk fully pleasing to my Lord, to your Lord? This watching, this knowledge, this evaluation could be profoundly troubling to us at first thought. Could you just ignore me instead? Can I just hide myself? Where could I go to flee from your presence? Nowhere. But we would want to do that because we're aware of the guilt and shame of our sin. And so we could think that when God thinks of us, that's how he views us, but that's actually not what the gospel says, so when we are troubled by the, the entire dissective knowledge that God has of us, words and thoughts, even before they come out of our mouths, when that attitude of troublingness comes to our mind, we must consider who our Lord is. He is the Savior who lived and died for us to forgive us of our many sins, He's the God who loves us and demonstrated his love by dying for us. He is the the God who has justified us, who has made it such that, that what you see first about yourself, you've come to Christ by faith, is not what God sees about you. 
yes, Jesus is watching your life and evaluating it, but in your mind's eye, is he watching with an angry scowl in order to critique and condemn you? Or is he watching with a merciful eye to encourage you and to help you? Ask yourself which of these options best portrays the truth and the good news of the gospel that we read about in scripture. How much condemnation is there for those who are in Christ Jesus? None. What does walk worthy mean? According to a standard walking worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And what does a worthy walk or walking worthy of the Lord, what does that look like? Boy, we could enter into a long series and uh, like series within a series within a series within a series. All sorts of possible answers from God's word on this. I mean, walking worthy means joyfully keeping God's commands, obviously. Uh, We could learn about walking worthy of the Lord through the example of faithful believers who have gone before us. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. God, but then look at what God did in the lives of generations of believers who walked by faith and therefore walked pleasing to the Lord and therefore walked worthy of him. We already did that series, so I don't need to go back to that right now. Walking worthy of Christ certainly means observing Christ himself in the Gospels. What did Jesus do? What were his motivations? What were his statements? What were his actions? What were his responses? We could look to him, obviously, as our primary example, but instead of emphasizing any of those things, Paul actually, in this text, from verses 10 through 12, uh, provides and focuses on four descriptions of walking worthy of the Lord in verses 10 through 12. Four descriptions summarized here on the screen. They are bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with God's power, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, as we see this in the text. That's what walking worthy of the Lord, that's what being fully pleasing to him, that's what this looks like. This is the description of these things. Let's walk through those one by one. What does walk worthy of the Lord look like? It looks like bearing fruit. We see this right here. Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. I hope the mention of spiritual fruit brings a text to your mind, a text being, among others, Galatians chapter five. Maybe you thought of a different text. That's fine. That's the text that came to my mind and Robbie's because he just nodded with me. There also in Galatians 5, Paul talks about the walk of our lives and then he gives two options for all of us. We are either walking by the Holy Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit and bearing bearing the virtuous fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Either that's true or we are gratifying the desires of our sinful flesh in opposition to the Holy Spirit. Now, the works of the flesh, he wrote, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, etc., etc., Which direction is your life facing? What is guiding you? The righteous Holy Spirit, God, or your sinful desires that come from your flesh? What is guiding you? The endless sinful options of your sinful flesh or the righteous leading of the Holy Spirit? Because the visible fruit of our lives reveals the hidden roots of our hearts. And when you see some diseased or rotten fruit growing, run to the gardener of your soul in repentance to receive mercy and to be changed. What fruit is growing on your branches? Is it worthy of your Lord? 
Perhaps we could go so far as to say that the fruit of your life reveals who your Lord really is. Walking worthy of the Lord, what does it look like? It looks like bearing fruit in every good work. It also looks like increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing or growing in the knowledge of God. A life worthy of Christ is also described by this growing, this increasing in the knowledge of God. Learning more of who God is. Learning more of what God has done through Christ. And and the only clear authoritative source for this knowledge is the Bible. It is the only authoritative source for the knowledge of God. You don't enter into a relationship with someone merely by hearing other people talk about them. There are endless secondary sources, endless secondary sources about knowing God. Thousands of years before the printing press, Solomon recognized already that the writing of books would be endless. That's when they had to do a whole lot of handwriting for those books. We fast forward and we add technology to it. There are endless secondary sources really on almost any subject and certainly on even the subject of God, but there's one primary source. His word in which he has revealed himself. So ask yourself this question thinking about that. Would you rather read a biography about someone or would you rather read their autobiography with them as the author and the subject sitting right next to you? Do you see the difference between that, right? A biography is somebody writing about somebody else. Maybe they knew them, maybe they didn't know them. But there's distance between that. There's interpretation that happens. But an autobiography is the person writing about themselves. So if you read someone's autobiography and they're sitting right next to you, they're both author and subject. And so you could ask them questions about it and interact with them and actually grow in a relationship and hearing about the things that they said and the things that they did. Why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why did you say this here? Why didn't you say this there? And through that, through that conversation of hearing their word and talking to them through that, then a relationship is actually formed. And and an autobiography of sorts is what we have in the scriptures. It's God's word about God from his very mouth. And in the scriptures, God fills him through the scriptures. God fills him, fills Sorry, God himself fills us with the knowledge of his will and the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and insight into these things. Knowing someone takes time, right? Knowing someone takes time, but it results in a deep relationship. Knowing someone takes time, but it, but it results in a deep relationship. Earlier this week, uh, Leanne pulled off an amazing mind-reading trick she knew from, from my posture, uh, from a random conversation topic that I came up with, she, she knew exactly what I was thinking. She was like, okay, you said this, but this is what you really are saying. It's like, Whoa. But it wasn't magic. It was uncanny. It was hilarious. Uh, it wasn't magic. It was almost 15 years of being married to me. God bless you. Knowing someone takes time, but it results in a deep relationship. And knowing someone takes time, but also time spent with someone creates a relationship. Time time spent with someone inevitably creates a relationship. So who are we giving our time to? Is it television shows or news broadcasts or YouTube videos or podcasts or, or other, other authors, social media platforms with certain individuals that we like something about? Who are we giving our time to? Because that, that is forming a relationship and we only have so much time, which means we only have the capacity for so much depth of relationship. So those television shows, those news broadcasts, the articles that you're reading, the podcasts that you're listening to, the YouTube channels about this or that or the other thing, 
Is that a worthwhile use of your time? Is all of that pointing you to Christ or is it keeping you from Christ? But I need to know. Yes, you need to know Christ. You need to know Christ. That is what is of eternal value. Relationships take time. Time produces relationship. We can have this this pseudo sense of relationship with a celebrity that doesn't exist, but there can only be one ultimate relationship in our lives, one. And Jesus said, it can't be to your father or to your mother or to your husband or your wife or your children or your friends. They can't be ultimate. He must be ultimate, right? How, how strongly did he say that? It's like, if you don't hate everybody else, not love me, you're not worthy of me, worthy of me. We must know Christ. We must know Christ. And in order to increase in our knowledge of God, we must spend time giving our attention to his word. And we must guard the attention that we give to other lesser things. So have you, have you stalled or plateaued in your knowledge of God, starting into a slow freefall or just stuck. Is that what Paul says is supposed to happen? Are we supposed to just be stuck for walking worthy of the Lord? We are to increase in our knowledge of God, who he is and what he has done. So if you've stalled or you've plateaued, is that because you've learned everything about God? Or is it because you've stopped learning about God, increasing in the knowledge of God. Walking worthy also looks like being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Bearing the fruit of good works, increasing in the knowledge of God, wonderful descriptions of moving forward in a walk that is worthy of the Lord. We're making progress on this path, good works, right? And, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And boy, that'd be nice if, it, if that path to do that would be great if that was broad and straight and easy. But are we promised broad and straight and easy paths in our walk with the Lord? We are clearly not. So what happens, what happens when, the, when we face opposition? What easy to walk a straight level path, but if that's not the path that we're on, what then? How do we walk worthy of the Lord when we are faced with the realities of, of trials? And all of a sudden the path is 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 uphill. Faced with trouble or hardship, faced with temptations where there's endless ways of going off of the path. But when we face distress or difficulties or affliction, persecution that the Bible so often speaks about, when, when somebody enters our path wanting us to go into a different direction and, and oppresses and attacks us, seeking to keep us from walking on the path of increasing in the knowledge of God and bearing fruit in every good work, what do we do then? I mean, these, these hardships, trials, troubles, distresses, difficulties, it could be as small as a head cold or as serious as lung cancer. These things could be as trivial as someone whose personality annoys you or it could be as terrifying as someone actively seeking to ruin your, your life, your career, or to harm you physically. What does a walk worthy of the Lord look like when the road gets rough or dangerous? Well, it looks like continuing to walk with endurance and with patience. Continuing to walk with endurance and patience, drawing strength not from your limited resources, but from the limitless power and the might of the glory of God. You've ever felt empty going into a trial that's just not just worn out from the last one. I, don't, I can't make it through the next one. I don't have what it takes. It's like, you, you are right. 
you don't have what it takes from your own resources, but you don't only have your own resources. When you are weak, you are strong because of the might of the glory of God that strengthens you for endurance and for patience. Endurance is continuing on your course despite those difficulties and dangers. And patience is a calmness in your soul when nothing else is calm. Not a calmness outside. I love calmness outside. I hate anything other than calmness outside. But there can be calmness outside and trouble inside. But what endurance and patience and the strength of the Lord says is there can be trouble outside and no calm, turmoil and devastation where inside it is well because of the limitless strength of God. Patience is a calmness in your soul that comes from trusting God and relying on him. And these gifts of endurance and patience from God are only revealed in our times of weakness as we cry out to the Lord to strengthen us. I wouldn't be strong enough for that. You wouldn't be strong enough for that. You haven't been strong enough for anything. But Christ's strength is sufficient for you in anything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Probably be some football player, right? Writes it on his face today. Has nothing to do with the Super Bowl, right? Or Super Bowls. So much more fun. Come join us, student service tonight. It has to do with starving to death, but calm because Christ is with you. It has to do with freezing in a prison cell, but being okay because everything's wrong except my relationship with Christ. He has given me peace and patience to endure. If you don't know much about vehicles, I know, guys, I know there's some vehicle people, car people, car guys, car, car girls here. But if you don't know much about vehicles, hearing about how many Vs are in an engine or uh, how much horsepower it produces is not very helpful, right? If you don't already know what that means, it doesn't mean much. Sometimes you need some concrete evidence of the power of a vehicle. I, on one of those work trips, uh, I rented a Ford Mustang. Its engine had a, had a governor on it to limit the top speed to about 80 or 85, and it was not difficult to learn that fact. And Florida has lots of straight roads. They don't really care about speed limits either, so... Not difficult to learn that. Even slight pressure on the gas pedal of that car produced quick results. It was easily demonstrating that, like, give me all the specs that you want. Doesn't mean much. No, a little bit. Not a lot. That doesn't mean much, but it's like you sit in the car and you hear the engine and you press the pedal and then all of a sudden you jerk back. It's like, oh, there's power in this car. However many Vs or horsters, my, horsters? My, horses, my car has hamsters. That's where I was going with that. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he also talked about the great and glorious might of God at work in us as believers. And do you know the example or the illustration that Paul gave to prove the greatness and the glory of God's might? It's like, well, how strong is God? Well, we could talk about omnipotence and trying to think through aspects of, of, of all sorts of things. It's valuable. I right? consider what God has done. But it's like when it comes down to it, can I have a really concrete, tangible example of how exactly, how strong is the power that God has that's at work in my life? And Paul says it is the same great might that God worked when he raised Christ from the dead. That's the power. Even science fiction knows that it takes more power than could normally be generated to raise someone from the dead. Even science fiction gets that, right? Like Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, who's the doctor, not the monster, okay? So if you dress up and you've got things out, you're not Frankenstein, okay? You're Frankenstein's creature or his monster. Frankenstein was a doctor, just needed to get that out. But he couldn't just like plug him into a 110 volt in the wall. It's not like he's flip a light switch, right? He needed, he needed lightning, even in science fiction, an enormous amount of power to try to resurrect and create life in this monster, but that's fiction. It's fiction. No amount of electricity coursing through a corpse could ever bring it to life. Life must be created, not manufactured in a lab 
or a factory, and only God is capable of creating life like that. And he demonstrated the greatness of his power by raising Jesus back to life on the third day after they crucified him. Case closed of the power of God that is in work in the believers. Now through his word, God speaks to you and asks this. Is your trial, is your temptation, is your oppression, is that more difficult than raising somebody back from the dead? The weight of it may feel like it is, but it's not. And if it is not, you can be sure that his strength is sufficient for you. So don't, don't weakly, weakly give in to temptation or pressure. Be strengthened and don't rely on yourself. Be strengthened with his glorious might. Number four. So the ESV connects with joy to endurance and patience of verse three, maybe. Uh, Other translations connect it with verse 12. So I don't really have a big problem with that. It's like, no, do not endure or have patience with joy. Joy is not part of the equation. That's not really what it's saying. But, But I do think that the joy is actually trying to drive forward into the next verse. So this fourth description of walking worthy is with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Walking worthy in this description means joyfully thanking God for the eternal benefits of our salvation that we haven't received yet. Joyfully thanking God for allowing us to be recipients of an inheritance, eternal benefits of our salvation that we, we have not experienced yet. Barely even a taste do we get to experience in this life. And do you remember the hope that the gospel had proclaimed to them? Verse five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, the hope that the gospel had proclaimed to them, the hope that had transformed them into those who trusted Jesus and loved the saints, right? There is a glorious inheritance awaiting God's people in heaven. God has promised this to us. I'm not just promising it to you, right? Paul's not just promising it to you, right? God, writing through the inspired pen of Paul, God is making a promise of an inheritance for you. The fulfillment, not of the details, not of the, not of the individual little things that you want, Right? But the fulfillment of your actual desires and true satisfaction. Not like, oh, I want this kind of car, so in heaven I get this kind of car. Right? No, it's just like, what, what are your actual needs and desires? What were you created to long for? It's God. And through God to enjoy all of creation, and that's the promise that's made. That's what awaits us. And since God has promised, we confidently wait to receive it. But just because we will receive it does not mean that we naturally deserve it. Far from it, from from the womb. From the womb, our sin, yours and mine, utterly disqualified us from having any chance of living with and in the joy of God's presence. You don't deserve to get that. Right? List of qualifications. Perfect righteousness. Failed, disqualified. But the gospel proclaims, preaches, shouts hope to us. Hope that God our Father has qualified the disqualified. Disqualified in your sin, but our Father has qualified us or you, all of us as believers, qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has forgiven our sin and he has canceled our debt. God has done for us, he has done for us all that is needed for us to share and receive a part in the inheritance that he's prepared for all his holy people. You shouldn't get it, but you do. 
Because although you are disqualified on your own, God has qualified you, right? He evaluates, it's like, righteousness in themselves, no. Faith in Christ, yes. Qualified. That's justification. This inheritance is not part of this present world of sinful darkness. We'll talk about darkness a little bit next week. This whole thing, this whole, this whole world de- defined as a domain of darkness ruled by Satan, the prince of the power of the air, as he talks about in another passage. And our, our inheritance is not part of this. I mean, it is reserved for us in the eternal kingdom of righteous light. Light that radiates from the glorious face of Jesus, who is light that shines in the darkness. And the more we recognize how glorious the inheritance is, and the more we recognize how undeserving we are to have a share in it, the more we will joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified us for that. Now, it's not much. It's not, I'm not... Uh, not looking forward to a whole lot. What's the point of heaven? Well, you're not going to joyfully give thanks to that if that's the attitude, right? It's kind of like, yep, oh yeah, heaven's really great. Going to be like earth, but somehow better. And everybody gets in because it's real easy. Just do a couple good works here or there, scattered around or say sorry right at the end. Real easy to get in. So this is, what's the joy? What's the gratitude in that, right? If everybody's getting in, it's like, what do you have to give thanks for? It doesn't make any sense. But if it's inexpressibly glorious and you are undeniably unworthy of it and you get what you don't deserve, not through what you've done because you can't deserve it, then joy and thanksgiving flow out from us to God. Walking worthy of the Lord cannot include joylessly living as if this world is all there is. It just can't involve that. It can't be defined by joylessly living as if this world is all there is. And being fully pleasing to Christ cannot mean selfishly claiming credit for what you have obtained and achieved. Can't be joyless and it can't be thankless. It needs to be joyful and thankful, walking worthy of the Lord, joyfully giving thanks to our Heavenly Father. Four descriptions of what a walk worthy of the Lord would look like, but how do we do that? How? How do we walk worthy of the Lord? This is definitely one of the biggest questions for us, isn't it? I mean, as Christians, of course, we want to walk worthy of Christ. There's no question about that. Want to be fully pleasing to him. There's no, there's no question that we don't have a desire for that type of thing, but, but how does it happen? And the first and foremost reminder is that you do not, and you cannot walk worthy of the Lord by your own effort. And I don't mean that it would just be hard for you to do so, but with enough focus and discipline, you could. No, no, that's not what I mean. When I say that you can't, I don't mean that you might not be able to do it very easily, right? Impossible is not the same as hard. And this falls into impossible. Absolutely, categorically impossible for you to walk worthy of the Lord on your own. So let's think about this. Worthy of the Lord means what? Pleasing to him. Fully pleasing to him. Which means that he is receiving the credit for what happens, right? Pleasing to him means that there's praise coming from him. So consider a coach who takes on an Olympic Olympic athlete. Never helps her train. Never watches her skate. Never provides positive or negative feedback. Never shows up to any competition. If she wins the gold medal, how much credit would she give that coach during her follow-up interview? How, how much glory, how much praise would the coach deserve and receive? None. Right? Because if that is done, if something is done by your own effort, without the help of somebody else, you're not going to live in reference to them. You're not going to respond in reference to the one who did nothing for you. Right? If it's you 
then you deserve the praise. But if it's not you, then you don't deserve the praise. The nature of our lives as Christians is not a competition to see how well we can perform on our own. That is not what this is. This is not God saying, get out on the ice. I hope you practiced enough. Do your best. That is not the Christian life. The end result is not that we would receive the glory for our own efforts. We live and we grow and we are transformed by Christ for his glory. So how do we walk worthy of the Lord? Answer doesn't start with us doing. The context of this passage dictates that. It is still Paul's intercession. He is still praying. He is praying to God on behalf of the Colossians, asking God to continue his work in them. So since it is a matter of prayer that believers would walk worthy of the Lord, then walking worthy of the Lord must primarily and ultimately be God's work in us, not primarily and ultimately our work on our own. And you can't have two primary or ultimate things. One ultimate. Just because there's one primary, one ultimate, doesn't mean that there's nothing else. But you can't have two tops. Walking worthy of the Lord is primarily and ultimately God's work in us, not our work for God. It's also, I think it's very interesting, I think we jumped in on verse 10 without remembering what verse 9 is talking about and verses 3 through 8, forgetting that this is prayer, forgetting the reference of this, we could jump in on verse 10 and just preach, you must walk worthy of the Lord. But that is not what Paul writes. It is not a command here. It's a prayer. And it's a prayer that doesn't start in verse 10. He doesn't start with the standard of transformation that they should live up to. It's not even his primary prayer request. His primary request is at the beginning of verse 9, praying, God, please fill your believers with the knowledge of your will. That's the prayer request. That's the start. Please fill them with the knowledge of your will. And how does that happen? May your spirit give them wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. And when we are, as we are, being filled with that knowledge, and when we have received wisdom and understanding, clearly God's work in us, when that is happening, then as a result, we will walk worthy of the Lord. God fills us with the knowledge of his, his will. What are his commands? What does his word say? Fill us with this and may your spirit take us and give us wisdom to apply this to the complexities of our lives. And what's the purpose of that? Paul's like, what, why is this my prayer? Because he wants us then, the purpose of the request, following the request, make us walk worthy of the Lord. May they walk worthy of you. May they fully please you. So how do we walk worthy of the Lord? We prayerfully, on our own behalf and on behalf of others, we prayerfully go to God's word to be filled by him with the knowledge of his will of command. This is what God's word says. But possessing the knowledge is not enough. So we prayerfully ask that the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and insight, the discernment that we need to take those commands and apply them to the complexities of our lives and walks. 
the wisdom to apply the knowledge we've received, that's good, but, but it must actually transform us. It has to actually show in the details of our walks or in our lives. So we prayerfully live according to that wisdom, which means the fruit of good works grows on the branches of our lives. And we come to know God more, and we come to know God better, and we endure patiently through temptation and trial and difficulty and opposition, and we joyfully give thanks to God for the salvation that he has given to us. And as these things become more and more true in our lives, more and more true as those things are worked in us, the Bible tells us that we are walking worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. One author said that our spiritual well-being as believers is only the penultimate concern when it comes to this passage. You know what, you know what penultimate means? It means second place. Got a list, prioritize all of it, and you got the number one is ultimate, and you got the penultimate, and it's not quite that. It's like, oh, I, I need fruit. Yes. Like, I need to know God. Yes. I need to endure patience. Yes. I need to joyfully give thanks. Yes. But your spiritual well-being is not first place. This isn't about you. So if that's the penultimate concern, what is the ultimate concern? That Jesus would be pleased with what he is doing in us. That Jesus would be number one. Our ultimate goal, our primary concern, the, the magnetic north of our world must be walking worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ for his praise and for his glory. This raises another very important question. Is that a good and worthwhile goal? Well, that's, a, that's an awful lot. Is Jesus worthy of us living worthy of him? And of course, risen king, church, Christians, followers of Jesus, of course we all say yes. Yeah, I know the glory question. Yes, Jesus. But why? Why is Jesus worthy of our lives being pleasing only to him? Why is Jesus worthy of all that? And that's the subject that Paul begins to shift to in verse 13. And the worth of Jesus is what we're going to cover over the next few weeks. The worth of Jesus that we walk worthy of. Father, we are undeserving that you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Please fill us with the knowledge of your will, wisdom and understanding from your spirit so that we may walk worthy of you as our Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in our knowledge of you, being strengthened with power according to your glorious might for endurance and for patience and joyfully giving thanks to you as our, as our Father, where you have qualified us to be part of your family and part of your kingdom forever. Amen.